everybody, welcome back to another great episode of We Speak Dispatch. Because we're speaking dispatch, hey, you know what? We're speaking it right to you, and you should be telling your friends, hey, I was listening to We Speak Dispatch, and guess what? That's interesting stuff out there. So, like today, you're going to hear a great guest we've got. She's down there in the box right there. We'll talk to her in a second here. But first, we've got to introduce our cast of characters. we got Leslie over there. How goes it, Leslie? Excellent. It is uh, summer officially in Southern California, and we are enjoying the warm weather. Yeah, and the high gas taxes. California. Well, but uh, and then down there is, is Joe. How's it going, Joe? Just got back from an eight mile hike in Iowa and absolutely loved it. Awesome. I, I was going to do an eight mile hike and then I thought better. So I, no, I don't think so. So, all right. And our special guest today hails all the way from Canada, for God's sakes. Here's Nadine. Nadine, tell us a little bit about yourself right there, what, what you do and that kind of thing. Thank you. Well, first of all, Canada isn't that far away. Well, you know. <laughs> we are just right there. <laughs> you need a passport um, to get there. I don't have one. So, it's you know. true. Yeah. And that said, I, I am in Newfoundland, which is far. I agree. Um, so about myself, I worked as a paramedic communications dispatcher for 10 years in Ottawa, Ontario, nation's capital. And um, I really thought that my experiences were just part of the culture. It just is what it is. And then sort of through a series of events, I end up out here in Newfoundland uh, getting my sociology degree. Wow. And I wound up just tripping over this study about 911 operators. And I thought, okay, I really wanna get into that. And my findings were just, just disheartening. That was just sad that <laughs> there is a certain acceptance of poor behavior in communication centers. Shocking, just, hold on. That is absolutely shocking. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> do, you, do you need the defib right now, right? Oh my, <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> take a moment, take a moment, so, yeah. So what's one of the most shocking things you've learned by doing your research into this um, great topic? What, what did you, what's one of the biggest things you've learned about that? Well, just as sort of a, a, a framework for that is that we are the only study that, you know, we were able to find nationwide mm. of only what we call or call paramedic, I'm sorry, um, public safety communications officials. So, you know, we'll just call them communicators uh, for now. But there has been no national study. In fact, we don't even know how many of them are in Canada because they're just there aren't any metrics on this. Really? And so in our study that was disseminated, it was partially funded through APCO Canada, just a wonderful resource to try to, you know, get all this rich data. And so we got representation from every province and territory in Canada in both French and English. So it is really representative of the communicator community. Right. And what we found out is that um, the majority felt uh, not valued, dismissed, not included, um, not only in mental health, um, follow-ups but in solutions going forward yeah. uh, there were problems with um trip treatment from responders from management and just the general morale being down and of course we know that you know most communication centers work down staff or at least here that was sort of the, the representative trust me it's everywhere right it is and so you know uh toxic environment <laughs> poor management down staffing, low morale, poor treatment. And what a lot of the public don't know is that comms officers get poor treatment from the public. They're, yeah. they're yeah. abused on the phone a lot. And it's not something that the public is commonly aware of, right. but that just adds another layer 
of where they get this sort of poor treatment and abuse. And so what we also found is that this was one of the most understudied groups uh, in public safety. And so not only are they not included, they're not even studied. Right. They're excellent. Oh, yeah. So how, how, is your, uh, how has your um, thesis that you did, how has it been received by the dispatch world? Not just local dispatch, I mean, not just line level, but management who are saying, wait a minute, we're part of this thing. What, what's been the reaction of that? It's a good question. And it, it was recently published, I guess, about a month and a half ago. So I haven't had the opportunity to, I have disseminated it, but I mean, whether they want to give me their feedback or not, <laughs> I haven't got, I've gotten very a minute amount of feedback. And a lot of it was an awakening of, oh, wow, this really is the reality. And what I find is that a lot of um, managers, people in positions of leadership within these uh work areas are unaware of secondary trauma. And so to them, they're like, well, you didn't see it. What's the big deal? <laughs> but what we know through, you know, various other researches, uh, research uh, studies of secondary trauma is that it can actually be more impactful than the primary seeing trauma. Right. And primarily because of the rumination, we imagine you know, catastrophes, we don't know how it ends. Commonly, we don't know how it ends. And we certainly, we go home wondering that. And oftentimes, you know, when the medics or the firefighters or whomever shows up, they're like, ah, you know, it wasn't a big deal. And, but that doesn't always get back to the communications officer. Right. So what one of the studies actually that I cited was, I believe out of Broward County, Florida, not hundred percent sure, but what they found out is that PTSD, the rate of PTSD was highest among paramedics, 911 operators, police officers, and firefighters. Wow. And so, yeah, it's significant, yeah. which makes it doubly impactful when they're not even given time after a call to sort of debrief. You How know? can people get a hold of this report? How can they, everybody read this thing? Because we got a lot of people on here. How can, I'm sure they're going to be saying, how can we read this thing? Where can we find it? Well, how do they find it? Well, at Memorial University, into the uh, you can go into the thesis section of the library, and Nadine LaDuke is my name. My thesis will be there. Also, I, I'm happy to send it for, I don't know if you guys post anything, if you have a place to post. We do. Um, we do. Yeah, we I'm, I'm happy Facebook, to send it. To Instagram, we're on everything, so we can definitely post it out there. If you email it to us. Uh, at that email sure. that even earlier that we speak dispatch at gmail send us that we'll put it up and and we can have people Love read it. it and see what their feedback's going to be because i'm just curious Love about it. what when you were doing this this uh study when you were talking to people did you find some people are a little resistant on telling you like how traumatic it is actually when it's doing these things or were they pretty open with it well it was a survey and so we did reach canadians across like i said every province and territory mm -hmm through email. And so mm -hmm. they were all given an anonymized link and there were a hundred and I think 79 questions. It was a, wow. <laughs> it was a big, it was. And so yeah. my questions that relate specifically to organizational culture and how a culture in a communication center impacts the well-being of the operators, mm -hmm. those were four questions in the last 10. Oh, and wow. so all of those folks had gone through all of these other questions and their mental health measures. So, you know, uh, what is your level of depression, anxiety, trauma, 
Mm -hmm. uh, trauma in the workplace, trauma at home, childhood, all of these different mental health measures. So we can sort of establish a baseline of uh, what, what does it look like out there right now right. for communicators? And, you know, when, when, you know, uh, remedies are implemented, what will it look like in the future? So this is a, a project with Dr. Richardelli and Dr. Charnock that is just passionate to, to all of us, mm -hmm. um, particularly the four questions. So what I found is these were open-ended questions at the end of a long survey and hundreds of people answered them, wow. hundreds. 700 responded to the survey and I think about almost 400 and they made themselves vulnerable. They did. Um, they shared some frustration. Some of them like, it's great. Their center is supportive and optimal, but not every center. And I'm grateful to every single communicator who will answer any of the questions in the survey, but particularly those four open-ended questions at the end and really shared their pain. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. Wow. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Leslie. I have a question. Well, a couple different things. And, you know, as you're talking about this and, you know, I know that your study was specifically for Canada, but it sounds like you've gotten some United States research as well, that this is such a prevalent and comprehensive and it is everywhere topic. And so it's, it is great that there's finally being some attention placed on this because we can all identify it in our own centers, but now to actually have a third party objective uh, study that is focused on that is huge. But you mentioned, um, you know, to, to get that baseline of what it's like now, and then somewhat alluded to potentially doing a follow-up survey in the future. Uh, what types of things do you hope come from this study at the ECC level where uh, that change can happen? What, what do you hope people are learning from this so they can implement change uh, in their own workplace? Great. In, in my lofty world, I would love everybody to read this and be like, oh my goodness, I'm going to change everything. Right. Um, and then I wake up. And what I found is that the most difficult service to get any kind of uptake from was the fire services. Oh. And it's highly patriarchal. All of the it was a benign academic survey. However, it had to be approved by the chief in almost every service I reached out to across Canada. And if the chief decided no, boom, it stopped there. And so my uptake from uh, communications um, services, fire services was, you know, not that great. I uh, did get a lot from police services though. And so the problem is the leadership so the leadership make decisions for other units based on their experiences, their knowledge, and their perception of what that group needs. And sometimes people in positions of you know, power assume that they know what's best for everybody. And so rather than asking you know, the boots on the ground, yeah. what do you need? They'll make unilateral decisions for them. And the, dispatchers are like, what were you thinking with that? that? That's not what we needed at all. Why didn't you ask us? <laughs> wow. Also, there's another layer of when leadership does ask, you know, the front line what they need. If it's contradictory to what they believe, then they're like, ah, oh, they're whining again. Ah, oh, they're always complaining mm. about that. Mm. And so it's, it's often dismissed, right? Yeah. And so here's a group wow. of people who are like, just 
listen to us. We know what we need. Uh, and so trust us when we tell you this is what we need. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult to get the leadership to change despite their claims to do so. And what I would like is that, you know, despite all of the, you know, the boots on the ground saying, all, all the communicators saying, this is what we need, A, B, C, D, E, it's not happening in more than half of the organizations that I was able to reach. So I think, I it's, believe I think it's not team. happening in a lot of agencies. Out yeah, there. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I mean, so all thinking, of us have traveled around the United States and, you know, it's not an uncommon thing to hear this exact thing you're talking about. So, exactly. But now know. it's data. Now it's yeah. not just sort of, you know, it, it is there now. And that's why I feel like it, it's a bit of an anchor that you can you can rest on now because it is proven. And because we do have national coverage, it is you know, it is applicable to the population and I'm almost certain, you know, it's applicable to the states. Let's be real. There aren't very many differences other than language within our, our um, cultures. So I would argue that if you are getting funding to operate a 911 center from the government, then you need to report back on metrics. Have you offered mental health supports? What are they? How often? At what point? We also found there were a lot of men in leadership positions and not women. Have you interviewed women? How many? Why did they not get the position? Help us understand well, how I many. I mean, men are clearly better. And the thing is. Oh, I did get the memo. Just kidding. I, I'm just kidding. I got the email. Yeah. Big billboard. Yeah. 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 One, of the, one of the things that I would like to see if it's in the thesis is when you talk about culture and you talk about change. Yeah, uh, yeah. The first two things that come up to mind uh, that most books and everything else talks about is building a sense of trust. Were there any questions about trust between not only each other, the dispatchers, but also the agencies we dispatch for? And the second one is that always uh, accountability comes up in most books. Was there any questions or results on holding yourself accountable, whether you have leadership in the department when you're working or not? So trust and accountability. Right. And so my questions were not that specific my my the question I wrote my thesis about was describe the organizational culture in your communication center and from that bubbled a whole lot of themes including management positive and negative culture morale div division gender and so when we talk about trust there were two types of organizations basically let's simplify it supportive and non-supportive when people talked about supportive organizations, they talked about trust, support, uh, feeling, you know, calmness in the center, not having fear to ask questions, not feeling repercussions for, you know, feeling stupid, I should have known that. Uh, and so there was a climate that was established in these communication centers where people felt safe to ask questions and to even say, you know what, that was a really tough call. I need a second off the phone. I need this, whether I need to go home. And this is where particularly supervisors more than management trust. You don't need to defend yourself. I trust that this is what you need. I am giving this to you. I support you in this. And so the trust existed in supportive organizations where they felt they could make themselves vulnerable and not be you know, judged for it. Right. And then when we look at accountability, the lack of accountability was a huge factor in toxic work environments where people are permitted to just behave 
however they want with no <laughs> consequence. And so when we, wow. look, yeah, the lack of consequence for poor behavior was high on the scale, especially when you're like, oh, it's just the way it works around here. It's just how they are. Like, I know that in my workplace where I used to work, ma, that's just how the medics talk. And I'm like, well, it's actually, why? Why are we permitting them to speak to us so poorly? Uh, it's just the way they are. I think all we look of us have the, had that experience where it's been yeah. just an accepted bad behavior. And yep. you're like, why aren't we doing anything about this? Why is this allowed why? to continue? And, and it seems why? like we, we get ourselves into a, a situation because... Well, if we hold that person accountable or if we put them in administrative leave or if we terminate them because of their their poor behavior, then we're even going to be more short staffed. Yeah. So, you know, yes, yeah. they've got a bad attitude, but they're a really good dispatcher. And how many times oh. have we heard that? And it, sure. to your point, Nadine, it just perpetuates this vicious cycle of negativity and, and toxicity that ultimately is going to impact almost everybody who works in that room. And, and it really is incumbent upon the supervisors and the managers to, to be mindful of that because you know we, we talk about if you permit it, you promote it. And so if you're allowing something to okay. happen, then even if I'm new, but I see that that's the way everybody else is conducting themselves and nobody's stepping in to mitigate that issue, then I, oh, well, this is what we do. And it just continues and continues and continues. And it's, uh, uh, within, sorry, within the, the framework, just like always a, you know, theoretical framework for these, you know, academic things. And what I chose is uh, Albert uh, for Shine. So Shine is like the grandfather of organizational culture, you know, professor MIT. And basically his concept is that when organizations you know, they have their value statements. We value A, B, C. These, this is our mission statements. And when the behaviors of particularly the leaders align with those value statements, then it develops a supportive organization, which promotes a culture of, you know, innovation, safety, um, growth, uh, family. And so there's a lot of positivity that comes out when behavior is aligned with value statements. When behavior is not aligned, then we have this sort of delta as well, that's just the way we do it around here. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter what they say. These are just kind of check boxes, yeah. but they're still going to mock you for being traumatized from that call. There's still going to be layers of judgment. There's still going to be unaccounted behavior, behavior that is accept, uh, acceptable when it should be just there's a code of conduct that right. exists everywhere how, how in the world are you permitting that but again <laughs> if you permit it you promote it like I, I just love that because yeah. it is and so these people feel like they don't have a voice how can you complain to somebody when they are like whatever you know I, you know what Nadine that's like the quickest 20 minutes I've ever had in my life is it 20 minutes so I talk yeah, a lot I'm like, I talk a lot yes. but here's <laughs> right. because we're probably going to get a lot of people talking about this this is such a big topic we talk about all the time and it's just nice to see an actual study that was actually yeah. put together and comes up with something. So, Joe, do you have any final comments? So I'll let you have the finals. You only had one little thing. So <laughs> I would just say to Nadine, we are in Canada. People are listening to us there. It's one of our most supportive countries from We Speak Dispatch. As we're in over 35 different countries and we're nearing 14,000 plays. So thanks to wow. everybody 
for listening to us. And your article will get some attention from this excellent episode. Doug, I'll kick it back over to you to close definitely this. Definitely will. Out. You know, we definitely appreciate you coming and, and joining us today from Newfoundland. It's like uh, Canada. It's such a great mm-hmm. time to, to have people from all over the country, all over the world get to talk to us and, and tell us what they've been doing. And we're so glad yeah. you reached out to us and we got a hold of you and brought you up there. So thank you. thanks to thank Leslie you. and Joe for coming for this uh, great little episode we had here. And we'll be definitely talking to you again, Nadine. So get ready. <laughs> we're going to be talking. All right. Thanks so much. Have a Until day. next time, everybody. Go out and make Bye. a great day. Hey, this is Jill. And you've been listening to another great episode of We Speak Dispatch, proudly sponsored by our friends at Zybex. 911, what's your emergency? 911 emergency. 